host and teacher, Bill Petrie, in today's Differing Things, will look at a critical conversation taking place throughout the entire Western world. Education systems throughout the West are trying to cast significant doubt about the validity of the Bible. Our youth are being brainwashed to believe the Bible is a patriarchal, sexist, and homophobic book that is full of errors and does not understand science. How do we answer these accusations? Now for our host, Bill Petrie. Suppose your son or daughter returns home from their first year of college and says the following, Dad, I do not know why you and Mom still believe in a Bible that is patriarchal, sexist, and does not even understand homosexuality. Don't you realize that church leaders chose the specific books they wanted to support their power, that the Bible is full of errors? And that miracles were made up to explain natural phenomena that we now understand through science? What would you say? This is a conversation that is happening with an ever-increasing frequency. As young adults leave the influence of their homes and churches, they are becoming more exposed to the internet and pluralistic American culture. So then, more and more of our sons and daughters are questioning, first, the miracles in the Bible, second, the historical reliability of documents used to compile scripture, and third, what they consider its socially regressive views of women, homosexuality, and slavery that they believe originated from sexist, bigoted Hebrew men not from a loving God. Some in this population do not completely renounce their faith. They just jettison the beliefs that they do not like. This movement called progressive Christianity, or commonplacing, deconstructs the Christian faith, rejecting the Bible's teaching about gender roles, sexual morality, and Christ being the only way to God. It is easier to be people-pleasers than to stand for counter-cultural biblical truth. We must ask ourselves a question. Why are doubts about the trustworthiness of Scripture so common? Christian thinker Jonathan Morrow, author of Questioning the Bible, 11 Major Challenges to the Bible's Authority, suggests that the rising generation is facing the perfect three-part storm to undermine its confidence in Scripture. I quote Brother Morrow, The growing secularization of culture. Our culture has largely divorced the spiritual from the rational. Spirituality is now largely understood as being experiential, emotional, and private. It is not publicly accessible and therefore not able to be critiqued by argument or investigated rationally, the word faith has been the nebulous placeholder for this attitude. Second, the strong anti-institutional attitude among those under the age of 35. 
In the Millennials Connecting to America's Largest Generation, Tom and Jess Rayner reveal that 70% of this generation has an anti-establishment view of the church. The last thing the millennial wants is a corrupt, hypocritical institution that is inwardly focused and often negative, telling them what the spiritual life is all about or should be. Third, sophisticated attacks on the Bible's origin, credibility, and reliability. This generation has unprecedented access to a mind-blowing amount of information. The new reality is that young people are far more likely to consult the internet than their pastor when it comes to questions about the Bible or Christianity. Skeptical videos and blog posts that challenge the very foundation of Christianity can go viral on Facebook and YouTube, reaching millions in just days. End of quote. How do we answer the three main objections to the Bible's trustworthiness? Objection number one. We cannot trust the Bible scientifically. Miracles, it is argued, are just explanations for physical phenomena that the biblical authors could not explain. Paul's vision on the Damascus Road was an epileptic seizure. Demon possession was the psychological condition of schizophrenia. But the ideology that says miracles cannot happen i.e. naturalism, has zero evidence to support its assertion that there is no being outside of nature. They just assume it. And naturalism is not logically tenable. It cannot explain the intuitive sense that all humans have that certain things like love, courage, and justice matter. They are more than mere chemical reactions of our brain. Most fundamental of all, the adherence to naturalism cannot adequately explain the origin of the natural world. No credible scientist believes matter is non-ending. And the self-creation of the natural world is a logical impossibility. And they know this. The only plausible explanation for the existence of the physical world is that it was created by a being outside of the natural world. For the being who created nature to suspend nature in the form of a miracle is therefore perfectly logical. In fact, if a representative of God came to speak for God, we might even expect God to give that representative miracle-working power to prove that he or she is from God. That is exactly what the Bible teaches, that miracles authenticate revelation from God. Objection number two, we cannot trust the Bible historically. It is widely believed today that the Bible is a historically unreliable collection of legends. 
a highly publicized group of liberal scholars calling, calling themselves the Jesus Seminar has stated that no more than 20% of Jesus's sayings and actions in the Bible can be historically validated. It is often asserted that the four New Testament Gospels were written so many years after the events happened that the writer's accounts of Jesus's life cannot be trusted. These stories were highly embellished, if not complete fiction. Many believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were only four out of the scores of other texts and that they were written to support the church hierarchy's power, while the rest, including the so-called Gnostic Gospels, were suppressed. This view has been popularized by the novel and movie, The Da Vinci Code. So we must ask the following question. Why should anyone trust the historical accuracy of the Bible? Christianity reasons this way. First, Jesus claimed to be God. Second, God authenticated the radical claims of Jesus by raising him from the dead. Third, Jesus taught the divine inspiration of Scripture through his view of the Old Testament and in the New Testament Testament by entrusting to his apostles the authority to speak for him. Therefore, the books of the Bible are God's inerrant word to us. Let us review the evidence for these three propositions. Assertion number one, Jesus claimed to be God. And by the way, his enemies put him to death for this claim. He said, I and the Father are one in John 10.30. He said, He who has seen me has seen the Father in John 14.9. In John 8.58, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. This is a claim to be Yahweh. And in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, he claimed the authority to forgive sin. In Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, he claimed authority over the Sabbath. In assertion number two, God authenticated this claim that Jesus is God by raising Jesus from the dead. Let us address the argument that the New Testament Gospels, which claim that Jesus rose from the dead, were fabrications to support a legend which Jesus' followers made up. Legends cannot grow during the lifetime of those who know the facts. The following summary of what the Christians believed was already circulating before Paul cited it, just 20 years after Jesus' death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verses 1 through 4 state, For I deliver to you as of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most 
of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, but last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Church history reveals that nearly all the apostles were martyred for their faith. No one would go to his death for believing a lie. There was nothing in either Greek culture or Jewish culture that would have led anyone to imagine an individual resurrection in the middle of history. The Jews who did believe in the resurrection believed only in the resurrection of the righteous at the end of time. The Gospels claim that the very first witnesses to the resurrection were women. Since women in that culture were not allowed to give evidence in court, why would the gospel writers have invented them? Then there's the early belief in Christ's resurrection is not based on one or two individual sightings. A large number of people across a diversity of circumstances testified that they had seen the risen Jesus. Peter Williams gives the list. The resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and countryside, indoors and outdoors, in the morning and in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals and groups of up to 500 people standing, walking, and always talking. This are the record of why we can understand that Jesus indeed is God. When you look at the eyewitness testimonies to the resurrection, recorded in documents, proven to be historically reliable, the only plausible explanation is that God did raise Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. And if he did, it proves Jesus's words to be true. Assertion number three, Jesus taught the divine inspiration and authority of scripture. He said about the Torah, the Old Testament scriptures used in his day, in Matthew chapter five, verses 17 through 18, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. During his debates with the Jewish leaders of the day, he appealed to the Hebrew scriptures to settle the matter. In Mark chapter 7, verse 8, he criticized them for neglecting the revealed commandments of God in the Torah. Jesus appointed his apostles to be his authoritative spokes spokesmen in Luke chapter 6, verse 13. In John 14, verse 26, and later to the body of Christ, the Apostle Paul, 
in Ephesians chapter 3. The apostles understood that they were speaking and writing with the authority of Jesus himself to the nation of Israel, just as the early church understood that Paul was speaking with Jesus' authority to the church. Paul tells us, in regards to this, Paul tells us that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in Ephesians 2.20. As Christian faith communities tried to identify which texts were the word of God, the two primary criteria were that they bore the apostles' authority and that they were noted as scripture by the prophets. The Apostle Paul addresses this with the church at Corinth when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 36 and 37, the following words. What? Came the word of God out from you? Or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. In short, Christianity believed the books of the Old Testament were God's word, because that is the way Jesus treated them, and the books of the New Testament to be God's word, because they were validated by Jesus when he appointed representatives to both Israel and the body of Christ. So I ask, can a thoughtful person today seriously believe that the Bible is the very speech of God himself? And the only answer that one can come to is a resounding yes. Let's address objection number three then. Objection number three stated, we cannot trust the Bible because its teaching was corrupted by the patriarchal, racist, sexually repressive cultures surrounding it. I want to give an example. I can't trust the Bible to be inspired when it commanded the Israelites to commit genocide. This is a tough issue. But here are some things to keep in mind. God's command to drive out the Canaanites was not race-based, but behavior-based. Canaanites practiced infant sacrifice, ritual sex, bestiality, and incest. Scholars believe that the babies who weren't slaughtered for sacrifice most likely had been suffering horribly because of the way that various venereal diseases contracted through bestiality had spread to them, and that God had to destroy all the people to prevent such horrible disease from spreading into the rest of humanity. In fact, this isn't just what is being theorized by theologians. Many scientists also believe this same view. Second, another example. I can't possibly trust the Bible to be inspired when it says, slaves, obey your masters. 
This appears to be a legitimate argument. The church needs to own its failure to oppose the horrible African slave trade. But the failure is the church's, not the Bible's. Tim Keller explains slavery in the New Testament this way, and I quote from his book, The Reason for God. Here's the quote. When the New Testament was written, slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like most everyone else and were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not usually poor. By contrast, New World slavery was much more systematically brutal. It was chattel slavery, in which the slave's whole person was the property of the master. He or she could be raped or maimed or killed at the will of the owner. In the older bond service of indentured servanthood that the Bible has, only the slave's productivity, their time and skills, were owned by the master, not the individual. The Bible unconditionally condemns kidnapping and trafficking in slaves. Just read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7. End of quote. Third, <clears throat> when people reject the Bible because it seems culturally outdated, we need to humbly remind them that such a belief might be based on an unexamined belief in the superiority of their culture and historical moment over all others. For example, in Western culture, a woman not being able to serve in the military is seen as unjust. But throughout the vast majority of human history, a woman having to serve in the military would be seen as unjust. And by the way, that includes the Western world. It is a recent phenomenon that allows women to serve in the military. In the Western world, saying that Christianity is the one way to God sounds to egalitarian ears is impossibly narrow-minded. But in the Middle East, the adherents to religions have no problem believing that their religion is the correct one and all others false. Because of the fall, we expect every culture to reflect both good, because we bear God's righteous image, and sinful practices that need correction. There's additional evidence for trusting the Bible, and I want to give that. First is fulfilled prophecy. In the Old Testament alone, there are over 2,000 predictive prophecies. In contrast, the writings of Buddha and Confucius contain zero prophecies, and the Quran only the self-fulfilled prediction that Muhammad would return to Mecca. This difference between competing claims to be the revelation from God is huge. Let's consider a few of the incredibly biblical prophecies about the city of Babylon that history proves came true. 
D. James Kennedy writes, the historian Herodotus, Herodotus tells us these walls of Babylon had towers that extended to 200 foot walls to the height of 300 feet. The walls were 187 feet thick at the base. The city of Babylon was impregnable. But God said of those towers in that city, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken. It shall be desolate for the eon. In Jeremiah 51, verses 58 and 62. The prophet could not possibly have written his prediction after the event. Because the fulfillment of the prophecy was not completed until after the time of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament had been completed 500 years earlier. In the 4th century AD, Julian the Apostate came to the throne of Rome. While engaged in a war with the Persians near the remains of Babylon, Julian completely destroyed the remnants of the wall of Babylon, lest it afford any protection in the future to the Persian army. But God had much more to say about the city. In Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 13, we read, Because of the wrath of the Lord, it shall not be inhabited, but it shall be wholly desolate. It shall no more be inhabited for the eon. And again, it was Jeremiah 50, verse 13 and verse 39. Ruins like those of Babylon, composed of heaps of rubbish impregnated with potassium nitrate, cannot be cultivated. The former incredibly fertile fields around the city of Babylon now can grow nothing. Because God has doomed this area to Ionian desolation, and not a blade of grass will survive. It is, to this day, a barren desert. Consider these two specifics, but apparently contradictory prophecies. In Jeremiah 51, verse 42, the sea has come up on Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. And the other prophecy describes Babylon as a desolation, a dry land, and a wilderness in verse 53. Claudius James Rich, in his narrative of a journey to the site of Babylon in 1811, writes, For the space of two months throughout the year, the ruins of Babylon are inundated by the annual overthrowing of the Euphrates so as to render many parts of them inaccessible by converting the valleys into morasses, end of quote. After the subsiding of the waters, he goes on to say, even the low heaps themselves become sunburned ruins. And the site of Babylon is a dry waste, a parched and burning plain. But God said it would never be built again. A prophecy radically contrary to all the expectations of the past, where every city of the Near East that had been destroyed had been built again. Babylon was situated in the most fertile part of the Euphrates Valley. And yet, 2,500 years have come and gone, and 
Babylon remains to this day an uninhabited waste. Wow. I think those are two seemingly contradictory prophecies that actually become complementary prophecies. And they prove to be historically correct before the history even happened. God said the city would not be rebuilt again. Yet the mightiest man the world had ever seen, Alexander the Great, decided that he would rebuild Babylon. Coming across the ruins of Babylon, he determined to make this the capital of his worldwide empire. He issued 600,000 rations to his soldiers to rebuild the city of Babylon. But history records the fact that immediately after making the declaration to rebuild Babylon, Alexander the Great was struck dead and died in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Then there's archaeology. Biblical Christianity is not a fairy tale that begins long, long ago in a galaxy far away. Rather, its stories begin with historical details, like in Luke 3.1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconitus, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The Christian faith is based upon historic fact. Over and repeatedly, the relatively new field of archaeology has verified the historic details of the Bible. Scholars Joseph Holden and Norman Geisler wrote, and I quote, Today, all the major biblical sites and geographical features have been located. To date, over 60 biblical figures in the Old Testament have been identified and verified. And another archaeologist writes, all told, 84 facts have been confirmed in the last 16 chapters of Acts alone. End of quote. Archaeology has often proved skeptics of the Bible's accuracy wrong. In the early 1800s, for example, liberal scholars scoffed at the Bible's mention of a powerful people called the Hittites. But by 1884, so much information about the Hittites had been discovered through archaeology that William Wright published an entire book entitled the Empire of the Hittites in the Hittite cuneiform language was later taught at Harvard. Third, logic leads us to postulate the infallibility of Scripture. And here's why. First, if God's inspired word has errors in it, then my mind and reason sit at judgment upon God's word. My mind determines which verses in the Bible are authoritative, so I might easily rationalize that texts that do not seem right to me are not truly the biblical teaching. Many have done that by saying that the biblical teaching about men leading the church 
and about homosexuality were culturally determined and not relevant for today's church. This is the result of elevating my mind over God's word. But obviously, God wants his word to sit in judgment over my mind. It is illogical that God would permit historical errors or cultural contamination in what the scripture teaches. We are told that God cannot lie. To allow those inaccuracies into his word would make God a liar, an impossibility. But if believing in inerrancy is necessary for us to submit to it, which it is, why didn't God supernaturally preserve Paul's original letters or Mark's original gospel? This question, I must admit, haunted me for a while. But I think I now know the answer. And the answer is this. Because if he did, we would worship them. Hundreds of years after Moses had fashioned the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so that those who looked to it were saved from the fiery serpents, the Israelites had turned the bronze serpent into an idol and were making offerings to it, according to Second Kings chapter 18, verse 4. Think of how in our day, the Shroud of Turin, supposedly reflecting the face of Jesus, has become an object of worship to many individuals. If humans had the original tab- tablets of the Decalogue, for instance, or the parchment on which John penned his gospel, or Paul's original letters, I guarantee humans would at some point be worshiping them. Honestly, the logical case for believing the Bible is God's word is overwhelming. But the strength of the case is not the issue. The issue is whether our rising children and grandchildren are hearing it from us. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17 comes to mind again. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Brothers and sisters, I am here today to tell you, we need to do our job with our youth. Stop giving it over to the educational systems to do what we should be doing. And with all this in mind, I ask you to give some serious thought as to how you would answer these questions if your child raises. First, how would you argue that belief in the miracles of the Bible is not being unscientific? I think you need to have an answer ready. Two, what are the most compelling arguments that we have historically accurate gospel accounts of the story of Jesus Christ? Three, 
How is the Christian view of Scripture based on Jesus' view of the Old Testament and his view of the New Testament? And last, how will you respond wisely to those initial take on the Bible that it is culturally regressive and corrupted by unenlightened, chauvinistic, misogynistic cultures around them. I challenge you, formulate your answers now and practice them so that you can be quick and ready to give an answer to all men. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Mm-hmm.